Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is my very good friend indeed, Liam. How's it going, dude? Less toastier than last week. I know. <laughs> it's actually kind of a nice temperature in here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, so it's manageable. It's not too bad. I've got some time off work coming up um, promptly. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm flowing pretty nicely, actually. How about you? Yeah, pretty good, man. I mean, that's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, isn't it? Because you're going to be enjoying your time off sitting in the back garden, you know, drinking hand. But it does mean that, you know, if the weather's nice, when we record, you're going to be going to the sweat box every week. Well, you know, I mean, it's... It wouldn't actually make sense for there not to be some punishment just nestled in there somewhere among the, you know, the yeah, serenity. Yeah. There's the good old British attitude. I just, for you. I just, that, yeah, that's just what we expect. We just, they're like, you find people, an immediate downside. People, people are like, you really are fucking miserable bastards, aren't you? It's like, yeah. It's like we don't see it as a pathology. It's just, you know, <laughs> hard to impress. But when we are impressed, boy, are we impressed? Absolutely right. And yeah, by the looks of things, we've actually got a very positive podcast this week, so that's good. And we're not dying of heat stroke, so that's yes. kind of awesome. Good did news you, all round. Did you listen to our outro from last week, by the way? I think I did, but I, oh, I can't. We were practically delirious at that point. I was really? listening to it back during the edit going, I don't remember us saying all of this yeah. shit. Why are we on a traffic island? Yeah. <laughs> Where are my trousers? Yeah. <laughs> but yes, positive vibes. Ahoy. Let's kick things off with a bit of film news then. A few articles this week. First one, this is from uh, ScreenRant.com. Netflix is trying to woo Christopher Nolan and get the director to release his next movie on the streaming platform. Nolan has long been seen as one of the only directors able to release massive blockbusters with original stories to box office success. Films like Tenet, Inception, Interstellar and Dunkirk are all films managed to break it bigger than the box office without any previous IP associated with them. Nolan's Tenet was one of the most anticipated blockbusters of 2020, but due to the pandemic, its summer release was delayed. Eventually, it seems as if the industry hung all their hopes of, the, of saving the box office on the film, prompting disappointing reactions when the film failed to make a splash in September 2020. Now, one studio has made it clear they want the director's next film. Netflix's film chief, Scott Stuber, told Variety that the streamer's deal with Steven Spielberg's production company, Amblin, gives him hope that he could bring Nolan over to the platform. Stuber doesn't know anything about Nolan's new movie, but he praised the director and said he would do anything he can to bring the movie to Netflix. Oh, okay. I don't think Chris Nolan's going to go for it. <laughs> yeah, there is that. It's I mean, quite, quite a strong hunch, that one. Yeah, Nolan is like a, a cinema nerd in the best possible way. Mm. I've seen him speak for hours on aspect ratios and different types of film stock and different size screens, and he is very, very big into the... I, th- I think his cinephilia approaches like some level of paraphilia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he really is in love with the art form of not just making films, but showing them in cinemas and what that means. Very much in like a... He's often compared to sort of like the the modern day Kubrick. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And I think his problem with streaming was that it wasn't the cinema experience because you're taking that level of control away from the director. You don't know if they're going to be watching it on their phone or on a laptop or on a 4K TV or have they got motion smoothing on. And I think he's got that kind of um, that obsession with it that kind of drives him nuts. But I mean, ultimately, I think that would be a mistake. I appreciate like protecting the cinema experience, but at the same time, the streaming market is going to be where the action is. And to cut yourself off from that and to sort of denigrate it a little bit, I, I don't think media consumers in this day and age respond particularly well to that. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, yeah, I do think that it's uh, a little bit... It's just not au fait, really, to completely reject it outright, but I can, I can definitely empathise with why there would be no dice because people who are so, so like insanely enraptured with the old school methodology of film and film distribution, mm. if you like, um, I can completely understand their side of the coin as well. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. From, from, a, from a sort of, uh, you know, because it's, it's not all just about the fucking money, but from um, a business model advantageous point of view, I totally get why not throwing your lot in is dumb. But um, I also think it's weird to not have very strong sympathy for someone. We've had this conversation in various forms. Like, we have, yeah. You know, being resistant to the tide is something that I can, I, you know, I don't have any trouble whatsoever completely empathising with that person and completely understanding why they want to dig their heels in. It'd be a shame to see, I, I think you, we're still in the era where you can do both. 
We're still on the switch over. We there. are for the time being. As we, yeah. as you said, we've we've had this discussion before as well. Is that you know, obviously we're a film podcast. Obviously, cinema massively comes into that. But ultimately, overall, we're an entertainment podcast. We're a media podcast. It just happens to be visual media. So I do the TV, you do the film. Cinema experience is a big part of film, but at the same time, it is something that can be not necessarily recreated at home. But the home experience is still, I would say, ninety percent of the thing. We've always had slightly split opinions on this is that you prefer going to the cinema. I prefer sitting on my sofa in my pants, you know, yeah. but ultimately it's two sides of the same coin. Well, the older I get, I'll probably opt even more for sitting on the sofa in my pants. I, you know. And you're even more antisocial than me. So the fact yes. that you go out to the cinema is, is something incredible as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think you can have both. And I think sort of, it kind of feels a little bit like I was sort of preempting Chris Nolan on this because I've seen other articles where he's just denigrated streaming services and the way entertainment's moving. It, uh, to reject that would be sort of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. You know, surely getting your film in front of as many eyes of, as possible is one of the goals. Or perhaps, I mean, it's not like he's hurting for any money or anything. Perhaps he is going to be one of those purists. But I'd, I'd love to be in those meetings. Well, if, anyway. if he is going to be one of those purists, um, I completely... Um, I have nothing but um, the utmost respect for that. Sure, sure. And I do, and I just, I just hope that somehow it doesn't work to his detriment in the future. Because mm. I know that because he, he is, he does have a lot of influence, you know, an extraordinary amount. But still, he is only one man. I know he's got a legion of, he's got a heavy team underneath him. But ultimately, he is only one man, you know. And it's some sometimes. There is an ad, you know, more often than not, there is an advent and uh, nobody can stop it. It just turns the way it wants to yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah, Horses and cars. You can't, you, no matter how hard you want to tell it what to do and where to go, it won't. So I'm just, I'm hoping it doesn't fuck him up. Yeah. Because I do like the guy. I like his passion for the craft. I think that he's very good at it. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll you know, we'll see what time brings. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But interesting stuff, though. I would hate to be the guy that Netflix sends to try and convince Chris Nolan to sign up for their platform because I bet he's got some really good arguments as to why he doesn't want to go in that direction. But yeah. Well, maybe if he do, if he does like surprise everyone and uh, capitulate to it or maybe that's that's not really the best word agree rather uh, maybe he'll it probably make, will be a capitulation. May, maybe he'll fair. make them look really bad, you know, because it's like you know he'll just go, oh, you know, like your guys, your your the production values, of your stuff is usually dog shit. Let me show you how it's done properly. <laughs> you <know, he> <laughs> Why aren't your TV guys doing your film stuff? Yeah, <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Like, yeah, ne- it is. Yeah. Netflix TV looks fantastic. Their TV production values in general are generally quite good. Netflix yeah. films less so. It's a very, it's a weird discrepancy. Budget constraints, it? or always using the same same production company and not being great. I don't know what what is behind that, but it's yeah, not very much talent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> far be it from me to make those aspersions. <laughs> uh, second article this week. This is from The Verge, although it's being covered everywhere. Uh, critically acclaimed and Oscar-winning director Jordan Peele's next terror is officially called Nope, according nope. to a poster. <laughs> yeah. According to a poster the director shared on Thursday. The details of the project remain shrouded in mystery, and you still have a bit longer to wait before you can see it yourself. Nope is scheduled to be released in theaters on July 22nd, 2022. So have you seen the poster on this? Yeah, it's weird. It, it looked like I had a glance at the poster. It looked like some sort of um, weird hot air balloon from memory. Yeah, it's like Something a like it's that. like a flying saucer shaped cloud. I think it's supposed to be. Oh, like, okay, yeah. Over the top of a city, uh, nestled in amongst some mountains, with a trail coming off it, like the trail you get off a kite with all the all the flags on it. So yeah, no one has any clue about the plot. So still, of this. still like not even the slightest synopsis crumbs. No, we, we've got some um, people associated with um, Stephen Yun and Daniel Kaluuya were rumoured to be in talks to join the film in April 2021, but their names are on the poster, so presumably they have been confirmed. Um, Keke Palmer was cast in the film in February as the female lead. Uh, as this article says, what exactly the three actors will have to do with a physical and likely metaphorical cloud remains to be seen, um, but this begins the wait, of course, for the trailer. So yeah, 22nd of the 7th, 2022, we shall find out what this is all about. It's I kind of love it when everything's sort way of... off in it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, but I kind of like it when uh, production is like shrouded in mystery like this. Yeah. You know, if the film ends up being really satisfying and great at the end of it, then it's it's a great way of sort of avoiding spoilers, isn't it? I feel like because of the various Dune trailers release at the moment and the, like the all the different snippets and theatrical bits, I feel like I've seen half the film already. 
And that's, yeah, not, I, I that's really, not because I've read the book either. Yeah, I really try and avoid that sort of stuff, but you you know, the ubiquity of it makes it virtually impossible. There's probably a good 20 minutes of footage of June out there now. And I know it's yeah. supposed to be quite a long film, but at the same time, I'm looking at it going, am I seeing all the best bits here? And that is a particular bugbear of ours, and I believe a lot of well, it is because, and, and, um, trailers giving too much away. And I, do, I think the mentality has changed. It has like comprehensively changed and almost irrevocably, I'd say. You know, people go like, what are you talking about, fucking gramps, when you say that? It's like, well, there used to be a time where movie fans, they valued the teaser trailer. Mm. They liked the, the teaser trailer. 30 seconds in yeah, and out. The teaser trailer, you know, because it, it you know, the perfectly, cons- a really, really, Perfectly constructed teaser trailer. It, it when you're when you're a movie night, it just it gets the anticipation glands like nothing else can. Mm. And people used to really value that and savor it, but they don't anymore. You show the average movie guy nowadays one of the class, one of the great teaser trailers for a classic movie, they'll just go, "What? What, what the fuck was that?" You know, it, and it's just every time. Idiots. Every time <laughs> I go to the cinema now, and the trailers come up. And I, it's like a four minute long trailer. I feel like I have to like check my phone or something halfway through it because it is literally spoilers. Yeah. There should be these, there are general rules, which is it shouldn't be over two minutes long. Anything over two minutes is far too long. 30 seconds, ideally, just to give you a hint. And also the trailer should feature nothing from the end of act two or act three in general. Why put stuff from Act 3 in the trailer? It's just from... I, 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 was watching, I don't want um, to see it anymore. I know where it goes. I think I may have brought this up uh, not too long ago, but I, I remember, because I love Strange Days uh, by Catherine Bigelow, and I watched um, probably the most well-known teaser trailer from that from 1995. And that teaser trailer alone got people in fucking gargantuan droves flocking to see it, because it's basically a lot of quite mad and abrasive... Um, intertitles and Ray Fiennes just looking straight at the camera and saying several of his lines in the film without context. And mm, but, but it, cool. and, and people were like, like what, what the hell is this? This looks weird and amazing and like, I have to know what this is about. What the fuck is this movie? That's how you do it. That's how you really do it. Mm. And people just don't really appreciate that anymore. It's, yeah, it's a business decision as well. It's execs going, well, you know, we need to put more of the film in there because we need to show off this special effect. We need to show it's got this sequence. And if you put that bit in, that means uh, women over the age of 34 will come and see it. It literally is quantified like that. And it's terrible for creativity, I think. As I think we've said a few times before, you should let the director do the trailer. You shouldn't let a marketing team do the trailer because they're just going to, they're going to make your film look like something it isn't. Which is, yeah, just the worst possible thing. But yeah, I anyway. think it's all about the fucking shareholders nowadays. It is indeed, unfortunately. Yeah, it is the uh, the business side of the movie business. And my last article here this week, this is from empireonline.com. Just last November, word broke that 10 Cloverfield Lane director Dan Trachtenberg was quietly at work developing a mysterious new movie set in the Predator universe. Now Collider has talked to producer John Davis, who revealed not only details of the film, currently called Skull, but also that it's already shooting. Yes, with nary a word on casting, location, or even storyline, the film is already underway, with Trachtenberg already reportedly three quarters of the way through filming. The main character this time, beyond the alien creature of course, will be a woman who encounters a predator on its first journey to Earth, the story taking place before the original film. It goes back to what made the original Predator movie work, says Davis. It's the ingenuity of a human being who won't give up, who's able to observe and interpret, basically being able to beat a stronger, more powerful, well-armed force. It actually has more akin to The Revenant than it does any film in the Predator canon. You'll know what I mean once you see it. You can use your imagination. It is dot, 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 early. 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 So with the title Skull as well and being the early Predator, are we we talking sort of cave people times? Are we going prehistoric? I don't know. That sounds quite intriguing. It does, doesn't it? I quite like the idea of taking the... doing like a, a, a prequel necessarily, although I think this would definitely qualify as one, but taking it right back to the early civilization, see see what he's predator, thinking predator, about. Predator versus uh, like Cro-Magnons. Or yeah, like, yeah, 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 something like that. Like early tribal people being, you know, and the, the predator, I, I don't know how that's going to work, but I, I am kind of, yeah, as a Predator fan and a huge sci-fi fan, I have been let down by many a Predator film. Yes. You know, I rewatched the original recently and it's just as good as it ever was. And it's the best one in the entire thing. Kind of in my mind, it's almost the the only one. Yeah. Uh, I liked Predators. I thought that was kind of cool, but it, it was sort of a seven out of ten movie. It was, it was a nice love. But for love- a Predator film, that's, <clears throat> that makes it the second best. It was best. a nice yeah. love letter. And I, and I have actually encountered people who seem to prefer the environ 
of um, LA and Danny Glover sweating his bollocks <laughs> off, which I, I mean, yeah, you do, you, fine. I just don't get that. At I all. didn't hate Predator 2, but it didn't. It's not a wonderful but movie. But it's just got, it's just got an, a naff and uninteresting kind of harried cop dynamic and this not really about the predator for most no. of it as well which and is the, I'm sorry, the, the, the Rastafarian organised crime subplot is bilge yeah it is I just, I just is. don't give a flying fuck about it <laughs> but you know I'm I'm kind of up for a, a predator really really early prequel that seems to be what they're hinting at here and I've been let down many times before with that little bit in my heart that really loves the original and thinks it's one of the quite possibly the best monster movie ever made. You know, according oh, to my it's, brain, anyway. it's definitely up there. It, mm. No, I completely and utterly agree with you. Though I think it is. I think you know, Predator, Jaws, yeah, Jurassic Park, fucking yeah. I mean, it's it is. I do think it's a big hitter in like in um, proper monsters. Holds up great as well. I've forgotten how many pussy jokes there were in it. <laughs> it's quite misogynistic. Juice, you got to be pussy. The, the, yeah, yeah. But yeah. then the, the characters are misogynistic. They're soldiers yeah. being. It's, it sort of all fits and all that. Yeah, yeah. It, it still works as beautifully as it ever does. But uh, I'll be keeping track of this one as I do with every project. Yeah, film. yeah, absolutely. Hopefully yeah. this time round I won't have my heart broken. Fingers crossed, mate. We shall see. Never pleasant that happens. Anyway, yeah, that's the end of the news segment this week. Uh, <clears> Liam has a couple of film reviews for us. What are we going for this I week? I certainly Rich? do, yeah. Well, we both looked at the trailer for this one not too long ago. In fact, it was you who um, you who introduced the uh, the trailer to me, the wonderful trailer. I settled down and I watched Pig. Yes. Because uh, I had just been heavily anticipating this ever since I learned of its existence. And um, I thought, well, I have to get my hands on this film. I have to get my hands on this film. Where can I watch it? Where can I watch it? Well... Yes, I was able to track it down and feast my eyes upon it. So, this is the directorial debut of uh, writer-director Michael Sarnowski. This is his first feature-length thing. He's never done anything before. And as we gleaned from um, from the trailer, uh, Nick Cage, it is Nick Cage tracking down a lost pig. But the thing with this film is that even now, people are saying like, oh, have you seen the trailer for the new Nick Cage film? It's like John Wick with a pig or something. You know, all these reductive things. It's like this with that. Um, and ever since seeing the film and thinking about the film more and more, those comparisons irritate me even more by the day. And I'll explain why. So, Intriguing. So Nicolas Cage, um, he stars as Rob. Robin Feld. Now, Rob lives in the forests of Oregon, completely by himself in a little sort of encampment, save for the company of his most beloved companion, which is a female truffle pig who is at his side pretty much at all times. Um, they go like, out like in the forest foraging together. She's always standing next to him when he's, you know, doing bits and pieces. Like, you know, he's he's got like a little sort of mattress in his like little hut place and she's got a little sort of uh, blanket with her own thing like right next to me. He, he is basically his pet and his best friend. Does she have a name? Uh, no. Ah, okay. No, Just no, pig. No. Just pig. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pig, truffle pig. Or as he refers to her several times, my pig. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Endearing. <laughs> but, um, so this is, I mean, this film opens, because I'm, one one thing, when people look at the poster, they've uh, said, like, oh, you know, that poster it has sort of hereditary vibes about it. There's something ominous about uh, the way Nicolas Cage's face looks and the black background and the very elegant sort of uh, calligraphy and, you know, the poster design has something sort of uh, elegant and ever so slightly sinister and strange about it. And right off the bat, the cinematography in this film, because the director of photography of this was Patrick Schola, and he has just done a wonderful wonderful job of that crisp clean shooting of natural environments and uh, as the film progresses um sort of uh, in a inner city the back streets and back corners and back houses and back etc etc of inner cities that the average layperson may not lay their eyes and he just he shoots it with this it's like a toasty immersiveness and with polish that is really really fantastic but anyway I digress back to the actual narrative thread um, we first see Robin when him and the pig are foraging for truffles and he goes back to 
his uh, he goes back to his little place and he's making a rustic mushroom tart because the film comes up with three it's like there's three uh, chapter titles and it's part one rust it's his part one rustic mushroom tart okay. <laughs> so uh and it cuts so it's robin gathering like truffles but also um sort of kneading dough and uh you know just assembling uh this tart um, at his at his food station with the pig by his side, you know, and it's it, 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 right off the bat, it's quite it is very sweet and endearing in a way that it just is feels completely bereft of hokum. It really does, and um, it just shows their typical day together. And Robin is bedding down one night, and he wakes up to find the pig. She's by the door, and she's scurrying about, and she seems concerned. And he's just like, well, you know, what are you doing? And he gets up and he tries to comfort her and he tells her to just like go to sleep. And then suddenly, bang, the door opens. He's knocked out and the pig is kidnapped. So Robin wakes up with a very sore head and rather nasty injuries that he actually doesn't really give a shit about getting tended to <laughs> Oh, in the duration. Um, and he gets into his car and uh, he heads, he starts heading for Portland and the first person he makes contact with, Amir, played by Alex Wolf, who mentioning Hereditary earlier, is actually one of the focal players in Hereditary. Alex Wolf, a young man named Amir, who um, he is a Portland contact who comes to Robin to buy truffles from him. The, pig, the truffles that the pig locates, this guy comes along and he collects the truffles, gives Robin some money for them and distributes them to the culinary world of Portland. Well, he contacts him and says, I want you to help me find my pig. I want you to take, you know, take me around some places, take me around like truffle farms, take me around some local eateries and take me into the city of Portland because I want to, I want to know where she is. I need to find her. Right. Cause this is like a, a high value animal, isn't it? Like truffle pigs are rare. And, yes. And obviously and, documentary and because, on truffle farms. Yeah. And because, well, because Amir is a young entrepreneur and he actually makes quite a lot of money from his relationship with Robin. When Robin tells him that the pig has gone missing, has been abducted, Amir is also, um, he is quite concerned, but for far more selfish reasons than Robin is. Amir is very, very money concerned. He's worried about how it will affect the business. But from the outset, you get the very unmistakable inclination that it's it's about so much more than that for Robin. And uh, as, he set, as he goes around the city of Portland, we discover that, Rob is actually Robin Feld. He was essentially, he was the Gordon Ramsay and Marco Pierre White rolled into one of the city of Portland. Everyone who has anything to do with the restaurant business in any way, shape or form in that city knows who he is. He was basically, he was the chef of chefs. He was the, the celebrity chef. But because of reasons that I won't spoil too much about, he retreated from society into wilderness with his beloved pig. And so it's Robin reconnecting with his past in the search for this animal as we, you know, and we get more of an insight into his character what kind of man is he? What kind of philosophy he has about life? Why exactly he is trying to locate this animal and um, the effects that he has on people around him, people he both knew before and people he just meets for the first time. This film is completely and utterly sublime. It is absolute. Number one, it's one of the best things. It's one of Nick Cage's best performances of his entire career. Without a it's one of his best performances, and it is he does he might do the typical cage rage animation shouty thing. I think he does it once in the entire film. Wouldn't be a Nick Cage film yeah, without it, and yeah. it's not even that egregious for the most part. His performance is it's mannered and it's calm and it's deliberated, and you know he is more of an observer than a doer. The character of um, Robin, and like he's um he's calm, but. I, Saw like somebody else put this very very well indeed. He has a calm exterior, but it's not serene. Like right from the outset, you know, he this is a troubled man, and uh, his retreatment into the Oregon wilderness is born more of avoidance and pain than it is some sort of stoic wish to just be at one with nature, away from the hustle and bustle. It's a lot more dysfunctional and unhappy for him. But yeah, this is resolute. This is not John Wick with a pig whatsoever. It is nothing like that at all. This is actually a film about coping with grief and, you know, thing, you know, why, you know, the things in our lives that we 
consider to be the defining aspects, what the things that make life worth living. Why why do we have them? Why do they mean what they do to us? The, and it's the importance of, you know, when it just, uh, looks at Robin's reasons for leaving his very comfortable and very well-respected position in Portland's restaurant world, you know, um, it's, it's, he shares his views with people on the importance of both artistic integrity and personal integrity. You know, he, you know, we we get to learn his views on critics and investors and lardy da and how they actually have something of a toxic effect on the soul of people whose passion in life happens to be food. But you could really apply it to most kinds of art. Really, you could you could easily extrapolate it to um, all kinds of passion projects and well, you know, passion careers. It's just in this one, it's very specifically centralized on the world, the world of cooking, the world of uh, chefing, if you like. I was about to say chefistry, but that's not actually a word, is it? I thought you were going to <laughs> chefery. Yeah, yeah, yeah chefferizing. <laughs> Let's just make it up. But um, there, there is, um, is humour in it. There, there is most definitely humour in it. There are, there are things in this film that will make you laugh, but it's completely predicated on that that satirical jab at um, the fact that the world that Robin has left, this world that uh, where he is held in such esteem, you know, where have you been for 15 years? It's mostly dominated by shallow, opportunistic people who um, nine out of 10 of them, they just, they're presenting, you know, everyone around them with a veneer, not their authentic selves. And um, with, uh, with Robin is somebody who, even though he is a man, with very, you know, with as much foibles as the next person, and there's some something of a tortured soul about him, and we he does he's very he's he's not as quick to reveal himself to people because of um, trauma that he elucidates and is very easy to empathise with. But this is the intrinsic aura of integrity that he carries around with him that the overwhelming majority of people in the city don't. And no, it's um, it's really well shot. It's really well acted. It's quirky. It's got offbeat, wonderful, articulate dialogue about existentialism. Um, and it's just, honestly, I was crying at the end of this film. I'd said to people, there's a film about Nick Cage looking for a stolen pig, and by the end of it, I was bawling like a baby, and people go, what the fuck are you talking about? Honestly, it's beautiful. Everything about it, the, the music composition, the cinematography, all of the performances, the script, the themes, the originality, the uniqueness of it, Pig is my favourite film of the year so far. It's fucking excellent. I'm so glad to see Nick Cage doing this because is, he is the perfect choice for it. It it needs to be seen. It's uh, I love this movie so much. I still haven't stopped thinking about it. It really hit me emotionally and intellectually. And yeah, I just think it's an excellent, it's an excellent film. I'm astonished that it's a debut as well because Michael Sarnowski has done such a fucking stellar job. So yeah. Wow, superb. Yeah, I was... Really, really hoping that this was going to pay off ever since we saw the trailer. Oh, it does. I thought, it does. oh man, that looks like it's got something. It's, it's, is it really unusual? Is it a very weird film? Yes, but in the just in every single way in which it's weird, it's weird in the in nothing but overwhelmingly positive connotations. It's hard, you really need to see it, but I can promise you it's worth your time. It is just, it's a thing of beauty. Fantastic. It really is. Yeah, I'll be straight on that one, mate. And, uh, well, next up, I came across this film because this was released a little while ago, actually. This was actually released late last year. But uh, being a really big Mads Mikkelsen fan and remembering some hype about it at the time, um, I came across this when I was doing some rounds and IMDb and stuff the other day. And I just thought, I never caught that one. Like, I, I should have fucking done that one. And um, this is Riders of Justice. It's by uh, Anders Thomas Jensen, who is a Danish director that Mads has collaborated with several times in the past. This movie introduces us to uh, Marcus, played by Mads Mikkelsen. Now, Marcus is a uh, commander in the um, Danish military, and he's currently situated in uh, Afghanistan. And uh, he's supposed to be going home for some downtime, but his superiors have just told him they actually want him to remain there for a further three months, which he's you know, understandably very fucked off about. This is news that greatly upsets his wife and uh, his teenage daughter, uh, Matilda, played by uh, Andrea Hyde Gardenberg, uh, because Matilda's about sort of 16, 17 years old and she misses her dad. But they have something of a contentious relationship because Marcus, um, it's very clear that from his military career, Marcus is deeply troubled. He doesn't exactly have the explicit meltdown PTSD, but he definitely has some variation of it. He is a very 
stoic and reticent man who is uh, he's used to dealing with problems through very exacting emotional restraint and rather sort of uh, reflect not reflex based violence and it's something even though his daughter loves him um, she doesn't feel that her dad understands or has ever really interacted with her like a normal parent but um, she's nevertheless crushed to find out that he's not coming home like he was supposed to. Matilda and her mum, they're getting ready to go into the city one day because uh, Matilda's unfortunately had her bicycle stolen. This is a um, an event that's shown in the opening of the film, uh, Matilda's Bike Theft. And I won't spoil um, the reason why it's instrumental because that'll give too much away, but it, it is very much instrumental. And uh, they board the train. As the train is going along, there is uh, some sort of works carriage like a railway station work, like it's sort of like a, it's like the work, the workmen's, um, like it's like a work. I don't know. It's a it's a work train. Whatever the fucking one of them things is. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Christ's sake, what you know? I don't know the. We'll actual. go with work train. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, that just all of a sudden hurtles along at um, an excruciatingly high speed, and it smashes into the passenger train that Matilda and her mum along. And uh, the front, the, the side of the train that um, Matilda's mum is sat on, all the glass caves through and it explodes and it blacks out. And um, Matilda's mum, very sadly, has been killed along with a whole host of other people. But uh, there are a few survivors um, from this from this accident or what we uh, like know up to this point is an accident. And so Matilda has survived and um, is obviously extremely traumatised. But um, another survivor is uh, a man named Otto, played by uh, Nikolai Cass. Otto and uh, his friend uh, Lennart, uh, Lars Brigman, they're a pair of noble and well-intentioned data analysts, and they've just been fired because they're try- they've tried to convince their contract superiors that their algorithm, they're trying to like perfect an algorithm for coincidences, like um, things to do in, this, in the particular instance of when they're introduced. They're talking about how to predict factors that might lead to automobile accidents and uh, and also what crime in a bit of a wider context and you know try almost like tr- um, trying to catch catch things before they uh, take root. Sure. Um, okay. But but the the people are not impressed and Otto he gets fired so he's t- he takes the train and he is um, some also another miraculous survivor of this terrible tragedy on the train. He goes home after getting patched up at the hospital. He sees Matilda at the hospital and um, he goes home and he turns on television and he finds out that on this train, one of the passengers on there was a man who was a member of a biker gang, a very violent criminal biker gang known as the Riders of Justice. And him and his attorney were on the train and he was about to give evidence at a trial um, against the president of the Riders of Justice for some very nasty crimes indeed. So Otto thinks to himself... Hmm, that's a little bit strange. So him and his colleague Lennart, they go and track down Marcus, who has been brought home now from the army due to his this family tragedy to take care of his daughter and bury his wife. Otto and Lennart, they turn up to Marcus's house and say, Otto says, I was on the same train as your wife and daughter. I have re- very good reason to believe that this is not an accident. And Marcus is initially sceptical, but they show him some very, very compelling series of coincidences that really do lend a lot of credence to the suggestion that this was actually an orchestrated assassination to take care of this ex-biker gang member so he didn't inform on his cronies. And so Marcus and this team, like you have uh, Otto and Lennart and their other friend uh, Emmentaler, like the cheese. They're basically, they're a trio of very eccentric and dysfunctional nerds. They're uber nerds, but they mean very well. It's the three of them teaming up with this stoic, incredibly badass and dangerous army commander to avenge the death of his wife. All the while, Marcus is trying to keep things under wraps and reconnect with his daughter and have a good relationship with her again. This is a wonderful film. And as Thomas Jensen with this, he has made a crazy action thriller there is actually a disguise for a really touching and really funny in that 
utterly batshit, bizarre, weird Scandinavian way about the importance of processing your trauma and being, you know, actually realizing and being cognizant of your emotions and trying to live an emotionally healthy existence and the importance of family, the importance of um, familial bonds, be they actual biological familial bonds or uh, sort of appropriated ones that you least expected. Because the people who band together in this, uh, because of uh, these coincidences, this closeness and affection and uh, sort of surmounting of differences starts to take hold. So you actually have this very, very touching, life-affirming drama, which, which is the most perfect, perfect, darkly comedic, insane inflections. That's what the nucleus is of the film, but it's it's wrapped inside this excellent action thriller sort of uh, window dressing that is that is that is it's adjacent to the proceedings. They work in lockstep, so all, all the while you have completely mad popcorn revenge proceedings, and which will tap into like the you know the violent the violent satisfaction quotient for any viewer in complete tandem with this really, really believable, sweet, weird human interest drama. And it's badass, it tugs at your heartstrings, it's genuinely really funny. Um, Mads Mikkelsen gives a, a top dollar performance. It's a really, really strange film, because when I say comedy drama, I can still guarantee you it's not the kind of comedy drama you think it is. But... Everything about this film, on paper, it's, this sounds like an absolute like lunatic's mess. This film really works. It's really funny. It's really smart. It's it, it drew several tears from me. It's really badass and poignant and lovely. And it is again, it is phenomenally worth your time. Riders of Justice. Mm. Yeah. I love the way you finished off with the title there. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> That's great. Please, yeah, yeah. please track it down. You know what? That, that wasn't on my radar, but I think it no. is now. Yeah. Oh, man, it's, this is so worth your time. It is, fuck it, you will laugh, you will piss yourself laughing, you will get pumped by it, you will be incredibly touched by it. It, is, it, it executes everything with perfection. It is so good. Excellent. Okay, then. Well, that brings me on to TV of the week. A couple of things as usual. Um, first thing I want to talk about is on Netflix at the moment, although it originally premiered on uh, France 2 in France, funnily enough. France 2. France 2. I don't know if there's a <clears> France 1, France 2, France 3, like we have BBC 1, BBC 2, BBC 3. But it's a France 2 production. Um, then it was picked up by Amazon Prime for the first season. And then it was picked up by Netflix for the second season. So two seasons so far. And it's called Black Spot. Although okay. in French, uh, zone blanche, which means a uh, white zone. So it's got sort of a diametric title thing going on, but I will get to why that's a pertinent title in a minute. Okay. This is a uh, French-Belgian co-production. And uh, yeah, let's get into the plot setup on this one. This is one of those ones where the plot setup for episode one is not going to do it justice at all. I'm going to explain to you half of the events that happen in episode one. And then I'm going to go wider with it and tell you what the show's actually about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because there's sort of big spoilers to avoid here. But um, let's start off with this anyway. Um, we first see a man driving through the French countryside, um, through the French woods, uh, to be more accurate. And it's very sort of tall trees and misty and a long winding forest road. And his car breaks down. And he pulls over and he goes to use an emergency phone by the side of the road to call in because his mobile phone isn't working properly. And he gets immediately stung by a bee and goes into quite a horrendous uh, anaphylactic shock. Oh dear. Whereas his limbs go all wobbly, he can't walk properly. He gradually crawls back to his car and hits himself with um, what we would call an EpiPen in the UK. I think it's got different names around the world. But yeah, yeah. An anti-allergen for yeah. people that are very, very allergic to bees, wasps, and that sort of thing. Um, we then cut to Lauren Wise, played by Sulian Brahim. And she is leading her team of gendarmes, her team of detectives, into the forest of this small town called Villefranche, which is also based in these woods. And she's investigating quite a grisly event indeed. There is a young girl um, hung dead from a tree. Oh. 
And her team around her are taking photos and investigating. And they notice that she's got an infinity symbol tattooed on her wrist. And she's been hanging there for quite some time. Lorraine walks around to the other side of the tree where she's hanging from and notices that some of the bark has been disturbed and she starts to rip away the bark and there is an infinity symbol carved into the tree. Not only that, but the sap from the tree is kind of bleeding red. And one of her investigators says, oh, I've seen this before, certain times a year, the, uh, the sap around here in the trees, it bleeds red, it looks kind of grisly. So Lorraine goes about investigating this horrible event that's happened near the town. Now, the town of Villefranche is where the title comes from because they are within what is called a black spot, or in French, apparently, a white zone, which means that the mobile phones and all kinds of technology in this area don't work very well. It's a dead zone. It's a, a place where no electronics seem to function on any kind of reliable basis. Sometimes the lights flicker. Sometimes you, the microwaves go funny. Sometimes your phone won't work properly. Sometimes cars don't start. It's just known as this small rustic town where strange things happen. So Lorraine goes back to her gendarmerie, her police station, and finds the man from the intro, Frank Siriani, um, the guy who used the EpiPen, He's passed out on her sofa in her office. Turns out, once she's able to wake him up, that he is the local district attorney. And the reason that he's come all this way into the woods to see Villefranche is that he's noticed that the area has six times the murder rate of any other town in France. And he's been told that it's this strange place where the locals are a bit funny and your phone won't work properly. And he thought, well, I had to see this for myself. I'll come down. Yeah. So (laughs) he decides that he's going to hang around and see what they do down there and try and figure out why this town has more murders than anywhere else and why such strange goings on happen. So Lorraine and her team, uh, including uh, Marshal Ferrandis, played by Hubert de Latre, his nickname's Nunes, which apparently is French for teddy bear. He's a big burly guy with a beard. He's uh, Lorraine's number two. Um, we've got Louis Herman, um, played by Renard Rutten. He's more of a hunting, fishing, gaming kind of guy. There's only about four of them working in this office because it's such a small town. But they go about trying to uncover what happened to this girl, why she was hung, did she commit suicide, etc. They eventually get a lead that she earlier had reported a rape perpetrated by one of her bosses at the local sawmill. She worked there as a receptionist. So they go and try and track down this boss only to find that he is living with his parents. And the reason he's living with his parents is that he tried to commit suicide a little while ago on the very same tree this girl was hanging from. And uh, he was left in a terrible state afterwards. He's lying on a hospital bed in his parents' front room on ventilators. He's completely and utterly unconscious. They begin to question the mother and father, but they say, you know, he's been like this for some time. There's no way he could have possibly had anything to do with this girl's potential suicide, even though they picked the same tree. And they notice that this guy lying in his bed has got dirt on his hands and his feet, which is odd for someone that's been bedridden for so much time. So Lorraine continues her investigation. She goes to the local sawmill, which is run, like most of the interests in the town, by the Steiner family. Very, very powerful family that have taken over all the industrial interests in town. Just about everybody works with them if you're not an independent farmer. And she has a chat with the mayor, a guy that she's known for quite a long time. They used to have a dalliance together. And he's very upset with the police force because his daughter went missing many months ago and they haven't found any leads. They literally don't know what happened to her. Anyway, Nunes, teddy bear, goes back to the house where the man is lying in bed with his parents. Goes back there late at night to see if he can question them some more. He walks in through the back door and notices that the bed, which this guy was previously resting on, is now empty. Completely and utterly empty. No one lying there. So he starts searching the house. He goes out into the back garden and finds this guy lying in sort of a hospital gown, spread eagle, out on the back lawn. He goes over to check if he's okay. And he suddenly turns around to find that the guy's mother is sitting there watching this lifeless form as he's gasping for air because he's not on his ventilator. She's watching him lying out on the grass. And he goes, what the hell are you doing? He needs, he needs help. We need to get him to a, to a hospital. We need to get him back in bed. What are you doing? A woman says, no, 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 you can't move him because the soil of this town is the thing that heals him. Bizarre. Bizarre indeed. (laughs) And that is a 
about where I'll leave it. There is much more than that, but things start to get revealed quite quickly that are very obviously uh, supposed to be surprises. And I would very much like people to watch this show. So here's the thing I haven't covered yet. And here's where I get really, really general. This is a hybrid. And it's a hybrid between a French police procedural and a supernatural horror thriller. And all I will say in regards to the supernatural sense is keep watching the trees. Oh, okay. This has been compared um, to, well, it's been called, in fact, quite a few times, the French Twin Peaks. Okay. Yeah, I right. thought that would get your interest yeah, up yeah. because you're a big Twin Peaks fan. <laughs> and I would say that's fairly apt, but the supernatural element is as you there's a phrase you often use on the podcast the giving you the willies kind of yeah. thing i again very very general here there is a presence in the forest and while the police procedural is happening with the rest of the plot this presence makes itself more and more known and boy did it give me the willies as we like to say at quite a few points Holy hell, I mean, I'll go full on for it. It creeped me the fuck out, this show. Well, you get a police procedural one minute where you're trying to track down. So the first few episodes in particular are different events happening in town, different crimes that these detectives have to investigate. But the supernatural presence becomes more and more felt and it sort of pulls its way into the plot, reaches a fever pitch where you're like, what the fuck is going on here? What am I watching? And then it pulls back out and the show goes back to its level of being a nicely acted, nicely written, character-based drama police procedural, which is just so fucking clever. I mean, the atmosphere is wonderful. These woods that surround them are very, very tall trees, and there's this constant mist rolling through them. It's that real hilly countryside where just nobody goes, you know? Mm. Kind of looks like the woods of Alaska or the Appalachian Mountains, you know? It's that that small town kind of vibe, except yeah, obviously yeah. very, very French. There's a beautiful soundtrack as well. You know the phrase like a tinkling piano? Yeah. This show's got a tinkling banjo going on in the background. And yes, there are definite <laughs> deliverance vibes. Yeah, going well, on with this called thing. it, called it. Yeah, 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 for sure. But it's just got this wonderful, one minute you're watching a really gritty, down-to-earth, character-based police drama, and then this supernatural bit comes in that's so well-paced and kind of freaky and kind of throws you off kilter and the camera angles start going a bit odd. you're not easy to give the heebie-jeebies. No, I'm you're not. You're not at all. So yeah. the fact that you are, you have, that has, it has had that effect on you really ramps my curiosity. It loves to do a mic drop ending yeah. as well where you don't think there's anything supernatural at play in this episode and then suddenly at the end it puts something in where, and obviously all of these small cases that are investigating, it's revealing the characters to you and as you get the character backstories, they're starting to tie in as to uh, links to this supernatural event. And in season two, they actually bring in some historical stuff that whatever's going on in these forests um, has been happening since ancient Roman times. So there's some cutting back to when Romans were in the area, you're making their way through Gaul. Sounds fascinating. It really (laughs) is a stunningly fascinating show. It's beautifully well acted. It's gorgeously well shot as well. It's got that fantastic small town vibe. There's great little gobs of humor in it as well. I love it when a show does this. When it's there's no way you could ever call this a flat out comedy. What it does is it it saves its jokes. And so because you're not expecting it to make a joke, when it does make a joke, it hits all that harder, particularly because they're all quite well written and they're quite subtle. There's a a bar everybody goes to in town where it's literally one of those, rather than a one-horse town, it's a one-bar town, you know? (laughs) And some of the interactions between the people there, and there's a very recognisably French bit of humour coming through in moments. It's it's sort of got everything, this show. I, I, I kind of... Love the fact that it's a hybrid that works. If this was, this is going to sound like I'm really anti-American here and I'm really not. Um, American TV has just been premier for so long now. But one of the things I've found during this whole lockdown period is because I'm a TV critic, because I have to review something new every week, there are all these people going like, oh, I feel like I've watched all of Netflix. Like I've, I've seen this and I've seen that and there's nothing more out there. Do what I've been doing and go and find the European and the international stuff especially on Netflix, which is a fantastic platform for it. Because I've found so many Scandinavian and German and French and all these this TV that I think 
most of the um, Western-centric world in the sense of Britain, the UK, all that kind of stuff, we're, we're kind of unaware of. And this is one of those little gems where it's like, why have I not been watching more French TV? Yeah, because it's just so beautifully, tonally perfect. It's got, it's a hybrid of all these different genres coming together. If it was an American show, uh, like I, I mean by that, like a, a major network American show, with this concept, they would have overblown it. It would have been lent too hard on the supernatural stuff. The uh, character drama would have been maybe a little bit more hokey. And again, I'm not getting down on American TV. It's just, there's a subtle... Jump scares and soap opera. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there are very few jump scares in this, I'd like to point out as well. So I don't want to overplay the scary nature and put people off if scary isn't your thing. The police procedural is actually the meat and potatoes of the show. But when it brings in that chilling supernatural aspect, it does it with grace and it does it with nuance, and it does it with a deft touch, and it makes the hybrid work. It could so easily skew too much one way than the other, and it doesn't. It just keeps it tonally dead on. Mm. And I, I've just had so much fun with it. It became a firm favorite initially. I would say I would say the first three or four episodes are probably the scariest. Is it a, it's, it's a limited series, is it? Sorry if well, you mentioned it. Well, the first season came out in 2017 and the second season came out in 2019 for Netflix. So it seems to be that this is actually taking a very long time to produce. And actually looking at the cinematography and the level of production value it's got, I can easily, easily see why. But you've watched uh, all of it so far. I'm two thirds of the way through the second season. So I haven't finished the second season. I don't know how season two ends. I don't know if it leaves it open. I would say it probably does because there's a lot of mileage going on here. It's spooky, it's chilling, it's got that gripping police procedural, it's got great characterization. It's got so much going for it, this. It's one of those European productions where I watch it and think, how have I missed you all this time? <laughs> and it seems to be that Netflix is now really pushing this and picking this up as well. So uh, depending on how season two ends, like I said, I haven't got there yet, I would expect a season three, but please do jump on it. Twin Peaks in the French mountains is very apt but there's a, a spooky bit running through it that is just so spine tinglingly well done that it really got me going and it's really pulled me into this, this universe. You know, it's, it's fantastic television. Really, really is. Awesome, man. I am uh, very excited to look at that one. And last thing I wanted to talk about this week, um, this would be actually quite familiar, I think, to a lot of listeners because it ran for ages and um, I wasn't up to date with it. And I have been recently. <laughs> um, because as I've said quite a few times, um, what myself and my partner like to do towards the end of an evening, because I make her watch all this super serious, spine-tingling, chilling stuff, is right before we go to bed, we like a few episodes of something lighthearted and comedy-based and fun. And I've caught up to date with this show that was aired on HBO from 2012 to 2019. Lots of you will know it already, but it's new to me. This is Veep. Oh, yes, the American um, version of uh, The Thick of It. Kinda. Yeah, yeah, kinda. Um, written uh, primarily by Armando Iannucci, who, yes, was the primary writer for The Thick of It and In The Loop, and also um, quite a few writers that he brought over from those shows as well. Although, interestingly, in the genesis of this show, he initially started out doing an American version of The Thick of It. Uh, the studio wrestled control away from him and it ended up being rubbish and doing terribly terribly badly. So this is sort of his second bite of the uh, of the apple, if you like, to try and do an American version of what is essentially a political satire comedy show. Uh, this stars uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus of Seinfeld fame and Saturday Night Live fame, of course, as Vice President Selena Meyer um, and a team of bungling and incompetent staff. It's got great cast this. We've got um, Anna Chomsky as uh, Amy Bruckheimer, Tony Hale as Gary Walsh. Remember him as Buster from Arrested Development? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic comedy actor. He's Selena's body man. The guy that essentially, he carries her big bag full of stuff. And he whispers in her ear constantly because she's meeting so many people she doesn't know who anybody is. Uh, you got Reed Scott as Dan Egan, a PR guy, super sleazy, that's hired on to help her vice presidential efforts and eventually her presidential campaign as well. Because is there an analogue to Malcolm Tucker? Well, I'm going to get on to that, oh, okay. actually. I, I just wanted to make a couple more mentions. Being too impatient. <laughs> I just wanted to mention a couple more mentions for the, task, for the cast. Uh, Timothy Simons as Jonah Ryan, who uh, they all call Jonad. He's the liaison for the White House to the vice president's office, and everybody hates him universally. Uh, Matt Walsh as uh, Mike McClintock, who is her director of communications and absolutely useless at the job, and many, many more as well. This is, I think... Armando Iannucci's best work. 
I really, really do think that. Really? Um, what you wanted wow. to know, like most people want to know, I mean, the, the whole thing with the thick of it was Malcolm Tucker and that great Peter Capaldi performance. Actually, his machine gun wit, his absolute savage, savage way that he can cut someone down. He got all the best lines in the thick of it. That way of just tearing somebody down, the most beautiful, almost Shakespearean prose, the way he was actually able to savage someone with all this sexual humour. Oh, just the utmost creative profanity that there has ever been. Yeah, or one of the nice things about Veep is that that character facet is actually spread out amongst all the characters. <laughs> Everybody's got Malcolm Tucker lines. Everybody in this show is an absolute bastard, essentially. <laughs> uh, not least of all, Selena Meyer herself, which is an interesting thing to do with the lead of a comedy show. She's actually really hateable. She hates her position as a vice president. She's got no real power. She's constantly being asked to you know, go and do meet what she considers to be uh, meaningless events, children's cancer charities and all this kind of stuff. And she completely looks down at everybody around her. She is ruthlessly ambitious, puts a brave face on everything and is absolutely prepared to, the second the door closes, she's cutting everybody down and making some of the worst jokes of all. I mean, you want, if you like the thick of it for scathing lines, watch Veep because every episode's got about 30 of them. And it's just this rat-a-tat-tat. It does, just, it does, so it doesn't um, skimp on the brutality. At all. I've never seen an American TV show go this far with dark humour. You know, it's really, really oh, this, scathing. This, this sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's quite good-natured in the sense that all the characters are hateable, which kind of makes you love them. Yeah. And you, you kind of, you are rooting for everybody. It does that great thing of taking hateful characters and making them really rootable. You, you would never in the real world want Selena Meyer to be vice president or to begin to campaign to become president because she's just this ruthless egotist, this narcissist that bullies everyone around her. But then everybody around her is bullying somebody else further down the chain as well. It's one of those worlds where everybody's as bad as everybody else. And the amount of humor that you can get out of that is wonderful. It's beautifully, tightly scripted. Um, great physical comedy performances as well. Great banter and back and forth. And you can just feel that chemistry coming off the cast. I was reading earlier, actually, one of the nice things is they spent six months rehearsing it before they even started shooting season one because they wanted these characters to feel like they knew each other, that they'd been bantering like this for a long time. They wanted to get the push and pull of these actors reflecting off of each other. You can absolutely feel that. Uh, it's amazingly consistent as well. Armando Iannucci actually left the show at the start of season four, and there are seven seasons of this. What's amazing is I didn't know that until I read it today, funnily enough, when I was doing my research to make sure I get everything right with it. And I couldn't tell he sort of handed it off to a team of, at that point, more American writers. And they actually kept the themes and the banter and the dialogue of the show going to a point where it's pretty much Armando Iannucci's ethos and his writing and his wittiness and his scathing cynicism just pouring out of the screen through different voices almost. But it, it keeps its tone up. Season one is actually probably the worst season of the seven. Although saying worst is only relatively speaking. It's quite good at that point. I sniffed a few times. I thought, oh, that's a good line. That's a good line. And then right around season two, it just picks up and it never loses that level. All the way through, there wasn't a single episode where I didn't laugh out loud a good five or six times, and they're only half an hour each as well. It's just, I'm kind of annoyed with myself that I didn't watch it sooner, actually, and that's why I'm doing it on the podcast. There's got to be other people like me out there that just kind of missed Veep entirely. And it is just laugh yourself sick funny. It's very, very ribald, dark um, quite often very sexual humour as well. I mean, it really does not hold back in a way that, as I said earlier, I'm not used to American television being. I would imagine it shocked quite a few American audiences because that kind of um, uh, almost sadistic kind of humour, that kind of twisting the knife and making cum gags about someone's mother, all that kind of stuff is not often seen in American comedy. It's normally played a little bit up. You know, with, with some notable exceptions, always sunny in Philadelphia being Yeah, right. yeah. But in general, they tend to go for a more lighthearted tone. This is lighthearted and really dark and dirty at the same time. It's a really, really fun ride. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I've been familiar with the existence of the show for years now, and I've never, but I've never really paid it any mind, but... Um, I didn't really know what I just didn't. I thought, oh, you think like an American version of the thick of it wouldn't work. It kind of makes. By the sounds yeah. of it, that didn't. <clears throat> but so Amanda yeah. Iannucci went, okay, so I'll write something for the American market. Yeah. And I, I, I would say, I would say it's better than the thick of it. It's funnier than the thick of it. Well, I mean, no, I mean, I totally believe you. It's just that when I initially heard the description, I was, you know, the American counterpart to the thick of it, as in, you know, the intentional sort of remake 
or spiritual success, spiritual successor, and I kind of thought to myself, ah, oh, that old chestnut again. But no, you've um, you've definitely uh, made me re- completely reevaluate it, that. It's I'm surprised the actors were able to hold the scripts because they are literally <laughs> on fire. You know, it's mm. it's that witty and that well written. Really, well, really good. Yeah. Well, two, two things to uh, absolutely check out. Well, we've promised a positive podcast and we've been nothing but positive this week. How about that? Fuck you, critics. Yeah. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Bad reviews for this one as well. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd finish off this week with, we've done presidential trivia before, but off the back of Veep, I thought we'd do vice president trivia. The uh, ever forgotten presidents of history. Is there a lot of stuff about Danny Quayle in there? Uh, no, well, <laughs> actually, I, he's a gold mine. <laughs> I really had to pick and choose on these, to be honest, because there's a, a ton of that kind of stuff here. I just tried to put together some some interesting facts along with some slightly funny ones as well, as always. But uh, yeah, push for time as usual. Mm. But let's start off with this one. How about uh, John Adams? Adams was the first vice president in U.S. history, serving under George Washington from 1789 to 97. He was president for one full term. Confusingly, at this time, the runner-up of the presidential election became the new VP, meaning that Adams became VP because he was the second most popular candidate after Washington. This also meant that when Adams finally became president, his toughest opponent, Thomas Jefferson, served as his VP. If this rule was still in effect today, it would mean that Donald Trump's VP would be Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Jesus. And what a strange, strange world that would be. Can you imagine? <laughs> I kind of want to see it, because <laughs> he wouldn't. So, you know, even if she was sort of, uh, you know, being being allegiant to his his administration, you know, you wouldn't stop the Donny train. He'd still be like wrong, wrong, yeah. wrong. You know? <laughs> Vice presidents and their families now live in the Naval Observatory. Originally, the VP lived in his own private home, but in 1977, Vice President Walter Mondale became the first vice president to live in a government-supplied home when he and his family moved into the newly renovated observatory. Oh, well. I think that's a bit of a rip. Right up until the 70s, if you were vice president, you had to live in your own house. You yeah. Didn't, you didn't get nothing. <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah. Richard Nixon nearly lost his place on the Eisenhower ticket in 1952 amid concerns about a fund his backers had created to cover his political expenses. In a speech broadcast on still-novel TV, then-California Senator Nixon successfully defended himself. The address became known as the Checkers speech because Nixon assured listeners that he intended to keep one gift in question, a dog his children had named Checkers. What kind of dog was it? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Absolutely no idea. I do not have that information in front of me. But Nixon, corrupt from the beginning. <laughs> I am not a crook. I have earned everything I've got. Yeah. <laughs> you just maybe you know that bit in Point Break where they're robbing the bank. Yeah, it's just like you know, come, how are we doing for time? And it's like we're taking doing everything in stride, Mister President. <laughs> <laughs> William King, unlucky Vice President number thirteen, missed his March fourth, eighteen fifty three inauguration in Washington because he was in Cuba trying to recover from tuberculosis. After Congress passed special legislation permitting King to take the oath of office on foreign soil, he was sworn in on March 24th in Cuba, making him the first and to date only vice president to take the oath of office outside of America. The next month, King left Cuba and sailed to the US, arriving at his plantation in Alabama on April 17th. He passed away the next day, and his tenure in office remains the shortest of any US vice president. No, I've never even, I wasn't even familiar with that at all. Yeah, William King, unlucky vice president number 13. Poor bastard. It'll never come up in your pub quiz, but you know it now, so deal with it. And finally, Abraham Lincoln didn't meet Hannibal Hamlin, his first term vice president, until shortly after their election. In that era, VPs typically were selected by political parties. When the president ran for re-election in 1864, Hamlin, a former Republican senator from Maine, was dropped as his running mate in favour of pro-union Southerner and Democrat Andrew Johnson in an effort to balance the ticket. Among other chief executives who replaced their Veeps is Franklin Roosevelt. FDR's VP for his first two terms, John Nance Garner, colourfully described the vice presidency as not worth a bucket of warm piss. That's one of the great themes in Veep, actually, as well, is that everyone goes, vice president, who gives a fuck about the vice president? (laughs) 
But there you go, vice presidential facts for you. Some interesting and one piss related. <laughs> Not worth a bucket of warm piss. Yeah, I'm going to start using that. I think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good, man. I like it. I like it. Not worth shit is just such a yeah, such a blunt term. Not worth a bucket of warm piss. It's much more evocative, isn't it? Yeah, there's something a lot more satisfactory to um to that. <laughs> okay, then. Well, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to go and record the premium. Uh, Liam's got a couple of Italian films to review, I believe. Yeah, well, because uh, you know how last week I um, I mentioned, I think I mentioned uh, Gamora and Dogman, uh, but there are a couple of others that I didn't get to mention that um, I really wanted to. And um, I've also got uh, another couple of things uh, of interest that I've watched recently that I really fancy mentioning as well because I think they deserve a bit of a plug. Fantastic. And uh, I'm going to review Disney Animation's latest, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Oh, yeah, this title has escaped me. I haven't seen anything about it. Yeah, that. yeah, quite a cool film, actually, but I'll tell you what I think about it on the premium. So, you know, Sweet. you'll find out, but everyone else has to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, as usual, if you'd like to check out our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page, or you can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast, and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Well, yeah, off we go merrily to record some more stuff. Thank you, people. Thank you very much. And just keep on watching that good shit. And um, yeah, well, you know, hopefully we're not uh, experiencing rapidly accelerated global warming, which means that by the end of 2021, we're all like, you know, just bits of toast in an apocalyptic wasteland. See, this was such a positive podcast. And then look what you did. Look what you did. I'm I'm, I'm saying I hope it doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I <laughs> remember we're all gonna die. <laughs> Still a better outro than last week. Come on, don't don't do that pathological optimism shit. You know I don't like that. No, no, no. Stay safe out there, guys. Well, stay stay safe. You know, well, unless you live in a really really terrifying neighbourhood, I guess. But stay stay cool. Stay. Just fucking enjoy yourselves. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now it's the worst intro we've ever done. All right. Thanks very much, guys. We will see you next week. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs>